Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. I think you will probably be rewarded mightily by our press. It's one of the most memorable lines from the 2016 presidential campaign, an open invitation from Donald Trump to the Russian government to help out his campaign by tracking down and releasing the emails deleted by Hillary Clinton. When he was asked about this statement in written questions submitted by special counsel Robert Mueller's prosecutors, President Trump replied that he made that comment, quote, in jest and sarcastically, unquote. But Mueller's report tells a different story. Two top campaign aides, Rick Gates and Michael Flynn, told Mueller's prosecutors that Trump was intensely interested in finding those Clinton emails, expressed frustration that they had not been found, and made repeated requests that his staff do something about it. One of them, Flynn, then reached out to a conservative financier, Peter Smith, who launched an ambitious effort to help Trump out, setting up an entire company funded with $30,000 working in coordination with the Trump campaign that tried to recruit Russian hackers for the project. The story of that secret project is one of the many hidden nuggets buried in Mueller's report. We'll talk to the reporter who first broke the Peter Smith story about what he learned from Mueller's findings, and we'll hear from a member of Ken Starr's team that recommended the impeachment of Bill Clinton on why he thinks Trump's efforts to obstruct justice are far more serious than what Clinton did. Efforts that have now morphed into a hardline vow by Trump to block any congressional inquiry into his conduct. All that and more on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And uh, we are joined while uh, Dan calling in from uh, Berkeley, California, it can't be with us today, by our uh, favorite guest host, Hunter Walker. Hunter? Thanks for having me. And Dan, I, I hope you are enjoying the left coast. Right. Welcome, uh, Hunter, from the People's Republic of Berkeley, <laughs> where... Uh, where they, I think they were reading the Mueller report instead of the uh, Haggadah at most of the Passover <laughs> seders here. Well, look, that leads to, I guess, our main point today, which is there is so much in the Mueller report that people have been digging into since uh, it was released over a week ago. And, you know, the more one reads, the more one finds. And what really struck me, one of my favorite bits, is Appendix C, where Mueller recounts his efforts to get testimony from President Trump about the matters he's investigating. Of course, Trump, he tried to do so. The office sought for more than a year to interview the president. The president refuses to be interviewed. They finally agree in November 2018 to respond to written questions that Mueller has provided. And they are replete with 
on more than 30 occasions, Mueller writes. The president says he does not recall, does not remember, doesn't have an independent recollection. Other wait, answers- wait, 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 wait. I thought Trump has the greatest memory in the uh, <laughs> in the world. Yeah. Wasn't that- uh, Except when questioned by federal prosecutors uh, who <laughs> could course. bring uh, perjury charges uh, against him. Other answers, uh, Mueller writes, were incomplete or imprecise. Mueller's not satisfied. He informs Trump's lawyers that uh, given the uh, inadequacy of the written format. Uh, They still want a direct interview. Trump refuses. And we are stuck with those written answers, which... And no no follow-up questions, right? No follow-up. They submitted follow-ups and Trump just refused to answer. So there you have it. Very clipped answers. Uh, Mueller concluded, we viewed the written answers to be inadequate. And I should point out that these are only written answers about Trump's conduct and what he knew during the campaign, about anything he did as president, i.e. all the obstruction issues, he refuses to even entertain questions. And I think that's significant because it's obstruction that is now the issue on the table for the House. So he refused on the grounds of what? Executive privilege? Or why did he refuse? Well, I think, I think the position of the Trump legal team is that Robert Mueller had no right to ask any questions about what he did as president because uh, those are uh, under his Article II authority. He could uh, fire anybody he wanted. He could uh, give directions to uh, members of the White House staff in any way he so chose. And therefore... Uh, Mueller had no right to ask him any such questions. Yeah, but you're you're absolutely right. That is where all of the serious questions about obstruction actually reside is once he becomes president, actually once Mueller is appointed. So um, it's a pretty big deal that he didn't answer any of those questions. Makes it harder for Mueller to uh, get into state of mind, which he has to prove. He has to prove that he's, he has a corrupt state of mind when he does these things. So uh, right. I guess it was a pretty smart strategy. Well, it was a pretty smart strategy if all you were trying to do is avoid uh, criminal charges by Robert Mueller. Right. But there is uh, the question very much on the table of whether the House is going to take up impeachment. Right. I want to talk about one of my, what I think is one of the most important moments uh, in this report. And the report really is just packed with important nuggets and context and information that I think led Mueller and his team to believe, even though they felt constrained about saying it outright, that this president engaged in criminal obstruction of justice. Um, And uh, we'll see what the Congress does with this. But I think, you know, sort of staying on the Passover theme, if you will, for a moment, (laughs) there's that delightful song uh, in the Passover service, Dayenu, which is to say uh, (laughs) it would have been enough if God had brought us out of Egypt. It would have been enough enough if he'd parted the seas. It would have been enough if he'd led us to Sinai. So I see where you're going. It would have been enough if he fired Comey. It would have been enough if he uh, directed Don McGahn to uh, fire Comey. I'm not trying to equate Mueller with God, but just to make the point (laughs) that there is just so much in this in this report. And what I wanted to focus on is the moment when Trump tries to get Don McGahn, the White House counsel, to refute the New York Times story that Trump tried to get McGahn to uh, fire Mueller. And so just setting the scene, Mueller is appointed in May 2017. 
within days of his appointment, you know, everyone is writing that one of the things that Mueller is investigating is whether is obstruction, whether Trump has tried to obstruct the investigation. So he's appointed. Uh, Trump then calls McGahn twice, asks him to fire Mueller because of conflicts of interest, which other White House aides tell him were trivial and silly. And this, then, I uh, believe this was related to a dispute they had about Mueller's membership at his golf course. Is that is that ex- correct? Exactly. And the <laughs> Justice Department looked at it and they said there's nothing. The ethics lawyers looked at it. There's nothing there. So Trump then, he's got, he has his personal lawyer call him again to get him to say this New York Times story was false. He has Sarah Sanders call him. Each time again, you know, McGahn says, you know, the story's accurate. I'm not going to do it. And February 5th, is I think this is sort of the key moment when Trump asks Rob Porter, a top White House aide, to tell him again to create a record, making it clear that the president had never asked him to fire Mueller. And he wants him to write a letter to the file for our records. And by the way, he also refers to him in that conversation as a lying bastard. And McGahn once again refuses. And Porter actually tells McGahn that that Trump would fire him if he doesn't do it. And McGahn says he won't do it. The optics would be terrible. And he doesn't believe that Trump would actually fire him over this. By the way, one one other quick thing I want to say about this is that Porter tells Chief of Staff John Kelly about this entire episode. Kelly's name has not come up a whole lot in the conversations about the report. He's he's in there a little bit. Kelly, you know, who, who I think a lot of people sort of regarded as a, a kind of a guardrail for this crazy presidency. But Kelly, on February 6th, organizes a meeting in the Oval Office in which Trump then once again berates McGahn um, and orders him to put out this statement. Kelly later refers to it, I guess, to Mueller as a tense meeting, but he never stops that. He seems to just go along with it. All right. So why is this important? Well, can I, can I just add yeah. something else yeah. from that yeah. meeting? Trump also asks McGahn in the meeting why he told Mueller's investigators that the president had told him to have the uh, special counsel removed. They get, And then Trump asked, what about these notes? Why do you take notes? Lawyers don't take notes. I never had a lawyer who took notes. Yeah. McGahn responds that he keeps notes because he is, quote, a real lawyer and explained that notes create a record and are not a bad thing, to which Trump replies, I've had a lot of great lawyers like Roy Cohn. He did not take notes. Roy Cohn, the famous mob lawyer who was uh, Donald Trump's uh, mentor in New York for many years. So why... yeah. And was later disbarred. Right, I mean, right, right. Trump is always invoking uh, <laughs> Roy Cohn. Uh, Roy Cohn, one of the most despicable, unethical lawyers in the history of, uh, <laughs> of, of the, the bar. bar. Yes. It's, it's almost <laughs> so. a moment of the president snitching on himself, if you will, and suggesting that certain people on his legal team, in addition to Cohn, Michael Cohen, maybe Rudy Giuliani, have mm-hmm. engaged in perhaps less than professional or unorthodox <laughs> practices. I, I, yeah. I am shocked yeah. to find out that would be going on in this establishment. Right. Uh, but look, this this is not only, you know, just sort of shocking behavior. It is, I believe, key evidence for Mueller and his team 
that led them to believe that this president did obstruct justice. And they go through a legal analysis. And what and one of the things that they they say is, look, there is evidence here that this was not just about some press strategy. This wasn't just to avoid uh, Trump looking embarrassed. There's actually evidence here that suggests that this was about obstructing a criminal investigation. They, and let me just very quickly, you know, one of the things they had to do is establish a nexus to a pending or contemplated proceeding. A grand jury investigation would be such a proceeding. And I just want to read this very quickly from the report here. It says that, um, but the president's efforts to have McGahn write a letter, quote, for our records approximately 10 days after the stories had come out, well past the typical time to issue a correction for a news story, indicates the president was not focused on a press strategy, but instead likely contemplated the ongoing investigation of any proceedings arising from it. Okay, that's one point. The second point, very quickly, is intent. They have to prove intent. This is what the report says. Substantial evidence indicates that in repeatedly urging McGahn to dispute that he was ordered to have the special counsel terminated, the president acted for the purpose of influencing McGahn's account in order to deflect or prevent further scrutiny of the president's conduct towards the investigation. So there you have it. And, you know, we have talked at great length about the reasons that Mueller believed he could not and it would not be fair to make an accusation of obstruction of justice. But for this reason and many others that, you know, we can get into, I believe that Mueller's position was the president obstructed justice criminally. I guess his first thought would be it would be up for the attorney general to make a decision about that, a prosecutive decision about that. We know how that turned out. Now it would be up to Congress. Well, and that's sort of where the ballgame is right now, because Trump has sort of basically drawn a red line that he's not going to cooperate with any congressional inquiry into the Mueller findings. And actually, he's broadened it. He's not going to cooperate with anything the Congress is doing in terms of oversight, which is a truly extraordinary stand. Hunter, I know you've been talking to uh, Democrats on the Hill who are wrestling with what to do about this. Uh, What are you hearing? Well, I think in the past, you know, less than a week, uh, particularly since Elizabeth Warren came out in support of impeachment, we're seeing a lot of momentum growing from that. And I think that at this point, it's not a question of whether or not Democrats will impeach the president. It's a question of how exactly they'll do it and when. That's what I'm hearing from a lot of Hill staffers. Um, you know, one so thing what's that was, the timetable? We got Barr coming in the next week to testify. That's clearly going to be a contentious hearing. They want to bring Mueller in there. And Barr has said Mueller can testify. But, you know, the big one, the big witness they want for that John Dean moment is McGahn himself. And whether he's going to testify right now is a bit of an open question, right? Well, let me set the stage a little bit right now. In Congress, you have this sort of AOC wing. We had her on a little bit ago talking about her support for impeachment. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Yes, they, they are very eager to see the president impeached. You then have leadership. You have Nancy Pelosi, who, you know, initially in a Washington Post interview that I'm told she did not run by anyone else in Congress, she implied it wasn't worth it and it was too divisive to impeach the president. Since then, she seems to have moved. She had this call with the Democratic Caucus on 
on Monday. And I'm told that there really was no strong opposition to impeachment on the call. The attitude of members was one person said to me, quote unquote, sober. And they were all sort of united in understanding that this might be up to them now that Mueller had kind of pushed it off and Barr had also declined to charge. And so what that means, as far as they're concerned, is what is the timing of this? And this is where a lot of political concerns come in, because certainly for some members in more purple districts, they are worried about that notion that impeachment could be more divisive. Of course, there's the backdrop of 2020. And how does this play? Then what one you know uh, really smart staffer said to me was, look at the Bill Clinton impeachment. And this actually played out over a matter of months. You had it get introduced. The proceedings began in the House and impeachment was over about two or three months later. Right. And they're a little worried about, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, blowing their wad and going too quickly with this when impeachment could be an important thing to let play out a little more during the election campaign from a political standpoint. I, I wonder about that, because once you get in, you know, closer into election season, it seems to me people will be very focused on just finding a nominee who can beat Trump and that having an impeachment proceeding underway next late this year or you know, going over into into next year is going to seem like a distraction from what should be the real game. I, right? I think you're totally right. And I think, you know, there's a couple dangers here. The first is that one political strategy could be that impeachment's great because it allows you to literally prosecute the president on a national stage. Another could be that it's bad because it's, as we've said, divisive. Uh, so there's no real you know guarantee for how it plays out politically. So that's one concern here. Another thing that I've heard, you know, and and then first off, you know, as of now, staffers behind the scenes are talking about this in very naked political terms that can kind of look craven further down the line. But another thing that I've heard that's a concern here is Jerry Nadler and letting him sort of do more hearings and do more investigating on his own before you begin the sort of end game of impeachment. And one thing another sort of more high powered staffer said to me was they're very concerned concerned that a lot of Americans might not have read this 448-page report. In fact, some of the members of Congress just have been reading it in the past couple days. But the problem is, do they get those crucial witnesses who can give them the smoking guns for the American public? And that's why I think the Don McGahn testimony is crucial here. He is the key guy. He's the one who you know says the most damning things about Trump in this report, and that Trump is invoking executive privilege. So that he okay, well, here's won't what be I able mean, to testify. I mean, Don McGahn is a private citizen, so right. you know it is up to him whether he goes up before the committee. The White House will attempt to assert executive privilege over certain potential areas of his testimony. But hold on, I mean. Mueller's already put this all out there, and Barr has agreed, you know, agreed to put it all out there. And to so Dan's they, point, to, haven't, to they, Dan's, haven't they waived uh, their privileges here? Well, I don't see that to, they can actually this, litigate this successfully. To this point, the witness that I'm hearing uh, Democrats most focus on is Mueller himself. And one staffer said to me, the beginning of all of this is getting Mueller to testify to create a quote unquote visual representation of the Mueller report, a TV version that Americans can watch. We can 
see how that's received, and then we'll see what happens well, next. I don't know. I don't know. I've uh, I've interviewed Robert Mueller. I've watched him testify many times. <laughs> uh, he is not a loquacious guy. And but that I, hey, but that is exactly the point, actually. Mueller is this kind of uh, like the last pillar of truth and facts in, in our in our society. And if he goes up there and is very measured and stone faced and a man of few words, as you know, you and I both know him, know he will be. That could have a kind of power and drama that uh, you know someone who uh, you know was more colorful and more passionate and emotional wouldn't have. So right. I think well, Hunter's source might have a point there. Yeah. That could be a pretty important moment if he does go up and testify. All right. Well, listen, we got a lot more power and drama to get to uh, on this episode. So uh, let's get on with it. We now have with us one of the best Intel reporters in town, Shane Harris, now of the Washington Post, previously of Wall Street Journal and many other places. Shane, welcome back to Skullduggery. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me. So I really wanted to have you for this episode because you broke the story that I think is one of my favorite nuggets in the uh, Mueller report, which is the story of Peter Smith. So tell us who Peter Smith was, the story you broke, and what you learned from the Mueller report that we did not previously know. Uh, well, Peter Smith uh, was, he's no longer with us, was a uh, financier in Chicago, but more to the point of this story, was a longtime GOP operative. Uh, if we go back to, to Clinton era, right, he is the guy who financed the Troopergate research, was going to put up the money to pay for the legal defense. Uh, he coordinated with David Brock on trying, you know, to do all stuff, Mike, yep. that you know very, very well. <laughs> yep, so, and reported on 20 years ago. Absolutely. Right. So Peter has a deep history in this kind of area. And during the presidential campaign in 2016, he became obsessed with this idea, which was not unique to him, that the 33,000 emails that Hillary Clinton had said she deleted from her private email server because they were not related to her official business. They were personal about, you know, yoga and wedding plans for Chelsea. Peter believed that those emails either were never deleted or if they were, they could be recovered from the so-called dark web. And he had this notion of going out and trying to find hackers and other experts who might either be able to get them or if they already had, persuade them to come forward and give them to him or even give them to WikiLeaks because he thought they would show corruption and malfeasance at the Clinton Foundation and and basically be used to weaponize against Hillary Clinton, which if that sounds like a familiar tactic, it's because it's exactly <laughs> what the Russians did. So I got turned on to this story in 2017 when I started talking to somebody who had been approached by Peter Smith about this. And the more we dug into it at the Wall Street Journal, what we found is that Peter had been doing exactly this sort of the, the mission as I described it, but had also been telling people that he was doing this with the knowledge of the Trump campaign and specifically with Michael Flynn who at the time was the national security advisor to the campaign, portraying Flynn as somebody who was aware of Smith's efforts and supportive of them. Uh, and at one point also claimed that there were a number of other folks in Trump's orbit, including Kellyanne Conway and some other people who he kind of portrayed as sympathetic and implying that they were in on it as well. When we broke the story, which included basically everything as I've laid it out to you, the thing that was still kind of the mystery in it was, was Peter Smith really telling the truth? 
that the Trump campaign was aware of this, or was he kind of puffing things up and exaggerating connections? And, and at that time, what response did you get from the Trump folks? The Trump folks said, effectively, we've never heard of the guy. Kellyanne Conway did say she knew who he was, but hadn't been in touch with him for a long time. And the message that came through from Michael Flynn through his representatives, and by that time he had been fired from the White House, was, yes, I know Peter, uh, he had from time to time sent me emails about what he was doing, but I don't really know much more than that. Well, we find from the Mueller report that that's not true. Um, what Mueller found out was really <laughs> go figure. <laughs> shock of shock. Shocked. Yes. So what we find, and, and this is this was news to me too, is that not only was Michael Flynn very much aware of what Peter Smith was doing, but Flynn in July of 2016 had actually reached out to Peter. Why? Because his boss, then candidate Trump. The Mueller report tells us, had repeatedly been asking aides, can we get hold of Hillary Clinton's 33,000 missing emails? And expressing frustration that they hadn't been found. Precisely. Why haven't you found those damn emails? Exactly. So we right. now see a candidate Trump obsessed with this idea that had obsessed Peter Smith and others uh, sort of in, in the fever swamp of conspiracy theorists on the right and directing Flynn. And it makes reference to actually individuals affiliated with the campaign. So presumably there are others that we haven't isolated, to go out and try and find these people, which now really then does establish a very clear link, both in terms of the goal that the campaign had and some kind of coordination. Important to emphasize, Mueller said, we did not find evidence that the Trump campaign directed these efforts, but clearly the Trump campaign well, knew what Peter Smith was the, up the, to. Peter Smith had written a memo, a uh, detailed memo about what he was up to, in which he said he was working quote, in coordination with the Trump campaign. Right. He was clearly in touch with Michael Flynn. Barbara Ledine, the wife of Michael Flynn's co-author, mm -hmm. Michael Ledine, was also in frequent communication. He sets up an LLC for this purpose, funds it with $30,000, and they are trying to find Russian hackers to get the emails. Absolutely. And what we knew at the time was that he had gone out and actually made contact, he claimed, with people who he thought were Russian hackers. There were six different groups, as he described it to me. Eventually, they focused on just five. And they said, OK, let's try and get whatever goods these guys have and see if we can find out if it's real. Let's try to authenticate it. And, you know, at the time, this is Peter claiming all this. Now, apparently, Mueller has verified much of it. New thing that we learn now is when Peter then goes to try and verify some of these emails, enter stage right, Eric Prince, the founder of Blackwater, <laughs> yeah. of all people, who puts Betsy up- Betsy DeVos's relative. Betsy DeVos's brother. Brother. brother right? Oh, yeah. Friend of Michael Flynn, friend of Steve Bannon, a yeah. guy who helped basically find people to fill out the NSC staff when yeah. they came into power, who puts up the money- for the technical evaluation of these emails. Now, that's a part that's just kind of dropped in the report and there's no right. more about it. And we've still got to look into that. But now you have another person from Trump World coming in, in this case, actually paying for the money to do the analysis to try and find out, are these, in fact, Hillary Clinton's emails? And if they were, the plan, as Peter described it, was to publish them. So hold on. I, I want to just pull back really briefly for what may be a silly question. But since this report has come out, there's been sort of a parlor game in D.C. I mean, I was with a Trump staff 
Schaefer the other day who was all hyped up because one of their emails was in the footnotes as evidence in the Mueller report. And everyone's doing the DC read and trying to find their name. And you really had the ultimate experience of this, where you know you broke this incredible story. And now there's this whole section in the Mueller report that A, answers this central question you had of how much he was in touch of, with the campaign, takes the story even further than you may have realized. Where were you when you sort of heard that this made such a big uh, splash in the report? Well, I can say that we had I'd reported earlier at the Journal that Mueller was looking into it when I, I learned that he had been interviewing people connected. But that's all I knew. And so it wasn't clear to me whether or not this was going to actually make its way into the report or whether it frankly would be even meaningful. But I, I can tell you that when the report came out, and you know this was 448 pages, we kind of divided the page numbers up in the newsroom, and, I, and I, I warned people, I said, that's fine, you can give me my assignment, but the first thing I'm going to do is control F. Peter Smith <laughs> right. and see if we can find it. And so it was... Sure enough, and there, there he was. was. Yeah. And, and what, what was that like for you? Well, I was reading exciting. And the way yeah. It was exciting to see that A, the reporting was validated, but B, there were all of these other things we didn't know. And, and to get to this point, the thing that kept this story from being sort of a weird kind of anecdote to something that tipped more into what we think of as the collusion space was the question of how much did the campaign know? How involved were they with the effort? If this was truly just Peter Smith out there BSing that he knew people in the campaign, that's one thing. If the campaign was in touch with them and in coordinating in some way, you know, that is operatively the kind of behavior that was at the heart of the inquiry. It didn't involve Russians, at least not actual Russians. But that, when I saw that, it was like, okay, this is more significant than we even understood. And, and to me, like the most significant part is, you know, you go back to that, you know, iconic line in the campaign from Trump, Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails, which Trump in his written responses says he only was saying in jest and sarcastically when you see that actually he was repeatedly demanding of his staff to find those emails. It does raise questions about the credibility of what Trump said to the special counsel. But we should also point out that there was uh, a odd and uh, somewhat tragic aftermath to your interview with Peter Smith back in 2017. Tell us about that. So he actually reached out to me. I had been doing this reporting and was planning to eventually get in touch with him when I had sort of gathered more information. He found out that I was looking into this and reached out to me, and I think it was May of 2017, and gave me an interview. Ten days later, and we didn't find this out until much later, uh, he took his own life. He checked into a hotel across from the Mayo Clinic. And in a fairly, you know, what seems like a kind of grisly scene, but turns out to actually be a way that some people choose to end their life painlessly, he uh, asphyxiated himself with a helium tank and a plastic bag. I did not know he was sick. I subsequently found out later he'd been having medical issues, and he left a note at the scene indicating that he was doing this because there was a life insurance trust that was eligible to be paid out, uh, and that he essentially wanted to leave money behind for his family. So, you know, which does add a, you know, somewhat Vince Foster quality right. to this whole uh, saga. I guess the the bottom line on that is do you have any reason to believe that his suicide was in any way also related to the reporting you were doing to the efforts that he had made during the campaign on behalf no, no indication of that. Um, and, and it came as as a shock to people I talked to who knew him 
there was no indication that he was suicidal. There's no signs of foul play, and I know this is going to sound fishy. He actually left a note that said, in all capital letters, no foul play whatsoever, <laughs> which kind of made some people yeah. a little bit suspicious. But there's been nothing in the police reporting about that. And it really did. It took a number of people, I think, who, who knew him by surprise because he hadn't given any indication that he was contemplating something like this. And, and, and the fact that it happened so soon after the interview was kind of you know, initially made us you know, perk up. But. It does seem like, at the very least, talking to you was maybe, and I, it's so hard to get in someone else's head, but part of getting his final affairs in order? I mean, do you have that impression at I all? wondered that, too. I, I, there's no way for me to really know that. Um, I would take somebody, if he had told that to someone, I suppose mm-hmm. we could figure that out. But when he was giving me the interview, what's interesting is that he was very clearly not telling the entire story. And even at the end of the interview said, you know, this is something we'd love to stay in touch with you on uh, <laughs> as we discover more, because he genuinely believed they still were going to find those emails. And, and also, I want to put two important bits of context on this. The first, and this is, I think, a really important thing to bring up when we discussed uh, this section one on the Mueller report in its entirety. You know, Mueller said very clearly, despite the president and the attorney general repeatedly saying no collusion, that collusion is not a crime. Collusion is not a legal thing he was using. He was working with the standard of criminal conspiracy, which is a very, very high bar. So even as we see the Trump campaign in your reporting and in this section of the Mueller report working to obtain illegal materials, the fact that they didn't and the extent to which they worked on this, I guess, didn't meet that bar of criminal conspiracy. But this is certainly unseemly behavior. Yeah. I mean, I think that's that's generally right. Now, let, let's imagine a hypothetical here, though, for a second, which is that let's say somebody did come forward hmm. with these emails and that the campaign or Peter Smith authenticated them. And let's say they even were authentic. And then somebody paid for them. Does that, that now? What is that? Tri- I, I don't know. I mean, this, right. this gets into a tricky well, area. Well, so th- this is a big thing that I think happened in section one of the Mueller report. You see the Trump campaign wanting to do illegal things, and they didn't have the opportunity to do it. Right. Clearly, there is a motive and some kind of intent yeah. that is there. Had but, but the campaign. That's, that, that's where I want to get to my second little bit of context here, because I was there at Hillary Clinton's infamous, I think, 2015 United Nations email press conference, and I. I will never forget this. I was sitting in a coffee shop later, sort of re-listening to the press conference to just uh, see what other posts to do. And I realized she had this admission about the deleted emails and that not only was, you know, that she was telling us uh, sort of volunteering that she had deleted all these emails as the State Department was sort of looking for them. And frankly, my immediate impression was, oh, my God, there must have been some really bad crap in those emails. So I kind of understand the desire of investigators and certainly political rivals to obtain it. But and, and you're the intel guy, so correct me if I'm wrong here. But from a technical standpoint, this whole thing seems ridiculous because you're not trying to hack into someone's email account. You're trying to this idea that on the dark web deleted emails that that were destroyed exist is as far as I know technically preposterous. It's pretty crazy in its conception. One facet of one theory that some of these people held that's not too crazy is that the server probably was already hacked even before she publicly disclosed its existence and so you could get the emails that way. But yeah, but to your point, I mean, this is a fairly quixotic mission these people right, right, are on right, right. and that we should be very clear, Peter right. Smith was not 
not a technical expert. <laughs> He's actually being taught how to use LinkedIn and social media by one of his assistants, assistants while this is happening. He also, though, I should say, he was keenly aware that there were legal tripwires surrounding this right. entire right. effort. He uses language about this is independent, in, independent, independent expenditure, expenditure, so we're not really in coordination with the Trump campaign, even Precisely. though his memo said that. Yeah, right? and he told me, yeah. he said, you know, well, we never would have paid for these emails because that's paying for stolen goods. And I'm, and now, had you actually found hackers who said, I'm willing to go break into some place on the internet and steal this for you, that's 100% a violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. But right. he knew this was sketchy. <laughs> Big picture. Other things that surprised you in the, uh, in the Mueller report? I think that it, it, even separate from Peter Smith, I mean, well, obviously, A, there is the new revelation that there was just this pervasive, you know, repeated insistence by the president to get a hold of her emails and to then publicize them, which, again, is precisely what the Russian operation was all about. I think there's also just, the, if you were looking at volume two, the very clear pattern of evidence of obstructive behavior. I mean, I am left with the impression I'm not a lawyer, but that if this man were not currently the president of the United <laughs> States, he'd be facing a multiple count indictment. It's just overwhelming, the pattern of it. And it's all consistent. These are not sort of erratic kinds of behavior. It's all driving at one particular outcome, which is to shut down the investigation of the president and in whatever tangents it might go off on. So, and again, we knew a lot of that, but I think that, you know, the cumulative kind of narrative force of having it all in one place. And, and I should really say stunning. for our listeners that as yeah. you're saying that, you are pointing at the Washington Post yes. printed, you know, 400 page phone book size right. Mueller report <laughs> that you, of course, have highlighted and already uh, posted it out. Uh, and to will the soon here. be available to the entire public. Absolutely. It's available right you now. You can get it now on Amazon. On That's right. Amazon, the Mueller report from the Washington Post, in which you will find the uh, Peter Smith story and much, much more. Shane, thanks for joining us on Skullduggery. A lot of fun. Thanks for having me. We now have with us, from Costa Rica, Paul Rosenzweig, who is a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and somebody I first got to know many years ago when he was working for Ken Starr, the independent counsel who recommended the impeachment of Bill Clinton. And he has some thoughts on the Mueller report and what it's told us. Paul, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So when I look back at the Ken Starr referral to Congress for impeachment, two articles, two of the 11 articles, I believe, leapt out at me, and they were 10 and 11. 10 talked about substantial and credible information that President Clinton endeavored to obstruct justice during the grand jury investigation, citing the fact that he had refused to testify for seven months. And then in 11, he started talked about how Clinton invoked no. executive privilege to obstruct the investigation. It seems to me both of those are quite relevant when one looks at the Mueller report. And I want to get your thoughts on the parallels there and what it tells us about what ought to be the response of Congress to the Mueller report. Well, I think that that's a, an interesting and important and salient history to which I would add that, of course, uh, one of the draft articles of impeachment passed by the House Judiciary Committee on the road to the impeachment of Richard Nixon that was short-circuited by his resignation also 
called out the president's refusal to comply with congressional information requests from the House Judiciary Committee in connection with its inquiry. So this idea that failure to respond to a legitimate inquiry is by interposing what I would characterize as frivolous objections is itself an impeachable offense, is, is one that has a lot of roots in our history. To be fair to the historical record, I should point out that when the House passed the impeachment articles against Clinton, it chose not to do those two that you mentioned, I think in part because they were offenses against Starr and not against the House itself, and that if they had been offenses against the House itself, refusing to provide information that is more akin to what Trump is doing right now, that might have gotten better play. But either way, the fundamental principle underlying all three of these instances is the question of whether or not a president can assert an authority to disregard the inquiries of coordinate branches of government. In the Clinton's case, the independent counsel and the orders of a court, in uh, Nixon's case and in Trump's case, the requests of Congress and and in Trump's case as well, the the request of his own special counsel. It seems to me that Trump, if anything, is doubling and tripling down on the obstructing congressional inquiries now, taking a stand I, I cannot remember any president ever taking, basically saying he's not going to cooperate with any congressional inquiry into his conduct. He's going to invoke executive privilege. He's going to refuse to comply with subpoenas or direct his subordinates to refuse to comply with subordinates. Taking all this together, plus what we learned in the Mueller report, are there, in your view, grounds to impeach President Trump right now? I would put it slightly differently. There's ample grounds for Congress to open up the inquiry and begin formal consideration of that. One of my critiques of the Congress in the Clinton era was that they didn't do their own independent investigation. They took everything that that the Starr report said just assumed it to be true and used that as the basis for their own activity. That both was in derogation of their own investigative authority and also didn't allow them to build the case that they ought to have wanted to build in support of their determination. So my view is that there's ample reason right now for the House Judiciary Committee to begin an impeachment inquiry and you know, uh, somewhere a little bit down the road, perhaps reach the place where impeachment is the right but look, answer. Just based on the standards you applied to Bill Clinton, it seems to me that, you know, we've more than passed that bar. Right. I mean, he oh, has. I mean, don't get me wrong. Yeah. If, if it were up to me, I would recommend them to impeach. I mean, if I were called to testify today at the first of those hearings, right. I would say that. Trump's obstruction of justice, and frankly, more importantly, Trump's dereliction of duty in failing to address the issue of Russian interference in our electoral processes are by themselves grounds for his impeachment. Add to that his recalcitrance in responding to Mueller and his uh, stonewalling of congressional investigations, and the case becomes, as you said, and I agree, much uh, more compelling than that which attended the recommendation with respect well, to Well, let's talk about the failure to address the Russian interference in the election and presumably to protect us from a repeat of that in the next election. You were at the Department of Homeland Security, if I remember, uh, working on some of these issues. What leaps out at you there that 
Trump has refused to do that he should be doing. And I should add, we got some new evidence just this week that he, I guess uh, Kristen Nielsen had been told by Mark Mulvaney not even to bring up the matter of the Russian attack on the election with President Trump because he doesn't like to hear about it. Well, I mean, I think that's exactly it. I don't necessarily have a specific set of policy recommendations for how to address this. What I do have is a sense that what the U.S. government needs is a national security strategy for response. And that response would include everything from possible sanctions to criminal investigation to funding uh, hardening of the election infrastructure through DHS and standard setting to cooperative work with the states. There's a whole nine yards of things. And for big problems like this, that's how our government works. It convenes a working group at the at the National Security Council level, and it devises a strategy for addressing it. We have done none of that precisely because the president thinks that doing so is admitting that he's an imposter and he's afraid that that's the conclusion. It's a dereliction of duty not to sit down and say, OK, what are the 10 top things we need to do to make 2020 safe? To that point, Paul, I I was very interested in something you just wrote for Lawfare on cybersecurity and the Mueller report, where you highlighted some of the uh, lesser noticed cybersecurity elements in there, such as that the Russians were financing this uh, election interference effort with Bitcoin, and it may have been less anonymous than they hoped. Um, And one line that you had in there that I think is important is you were talking about how the report documented Russian efforts to hack into state election systems intrusion. And I know, Mike, you were one of the first reporters to cover that. It's all outlined in, I believe, page 50 of the Mueller report. And I I should add, we learned more from the Mueller report about just how extensive those Russian efforts were, including penetrating a Florida county's computers with malware during the election, something that happened. And this really leapt out at me at the report. In November, on the eve of the election, the Russian GRU sends spear phishing emails to over 120 email accounts used by Florida County officials. So just as people are getting prepared to vote, the Russians are targeting Florida County officials who are responsible for the voting. And I have some sources in the computer science and cybersecurity world who've been very concerned by this. They were all immediately texting me about, you know, this page 50 in the report. And some of them have actually been meeting with Democrats on the Hill trying to raise alarms about this. So I'm wondering, Paul, you know, given your expertise in cybersecurity, do you think that this went beyond a fishing expedition? Do you think there's any possibility the Russians could have manipulated results in the past or could do so going forward? Well, the answer to the second half of that question is absolutely going forward. Retrospectively, that's one of you know Don Rumsfeld's known unknowns. All right. We have had no solid forensic evidence establishing the actual manipulation of vote totals or registrations. We have ample evidence that you guys just alluded to of efforts to do so. And it is reasonable to assume that there are other efforts of which we're unaware that were equally the provenance of the GRU's activities, because you don't discover all the crimes that happen on your watch. You only discover the ones you discover. That having been said, the effort by looking back, it's uh, tempting to look backward as a way of kind of asking the question about the legitimacy of President Trump. I think, frankly, that the only way to actually get a consensus for the changes that are necessary is to spend as much of our effort as we can using that as a platform to look forward to 2020. It should be a bipartisan agreement that the vote should be the vote and that only Americans should be uh, involved in the tally. 
that we haven't reached that consensus is really shameful, especially, sadly, on the part of the Republican Party. And I think this is such an important and interesting thing, because amid all these questions of obstruction, I think we're seeing a lack of interest on the part of this administration in investigating what could happen and what has happened in terms of intrusion into our election systems. And it's obviously such an important question. Right. It would be very interesting to hear from uh, Christine Nielsen, the who had been the uh, Secretary of Homeland Security, about her conversation with Mulvaney being told, don't even bring this up with the president. He doesn't want to hear about it. All of that being said, as much as I've heard that Democrats on the Hill have taken Mm -hmm. some meetings with computer science experts concerned about it, I think they are, from what I've heard from these people who've spoken with them, they are reluctant to make hearings or to make this a big issue because I think it's politically dangerous. It sounds so much like conspiracy theory to the public. Public, but the expert consensus and what we're seeing in the Mueller report really shows reason for concern here. Yeah. Let me take you back, Paul, to the obstruction issues, because I just find it so striking. When you were a part of the team that recommended the impeachment of Bill Clinton, you talked about him refusing to testify. Of course, in the end, he did when threatened with a subpoena. But even lying to his aides about his relationship with Monica Lewinsky knowing that his aides would then go out and lie to the public, that was cited as a grounds for impeachment in and of itself. And so it wasn't just that what he said or what Clinton refused at first to say and then what he later said to the grand jury, it was that he was putting out false stories. Now you take that to, now let's look at Trump's conversations with Don McGahn, in which he's telling him to create a false record about his own conversations with McGahn, in which he instructed McGahn to get Mueller fired. It seems that it's to another level. He's not just lying to them. He is trying to create a false paper trail to justify his lies. I think that's exactly right. I mean, My favorite story from the Clinton era was uh, Bill's interactions with his secretary, Betty Curry. Right. Attempting to coach her into uh, saying, you know, you were always where you could see us, right? Mm -hmm. You could see and hear everything, right? Which was, of course, untrue. Thank Uh, God for her. He was trying. (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) Well, that's cruel. All right. Um, And Betty Curry, by uh, the way, who later became the owner of Socks the Cat. Just I needed to put that in there as well. All right. (laughs) Continue, Um, Paul. So so that for me was one of the most palpably aggressive efforts to control the narrative, tamper with witnesses, create a false impression for the American people and a false impression for the investigation. Trump's efforts are blunter by a thousandfold. He doesn't even have the sophistication and subtlety of, of Bill Clinton. It's not, I didn't really try to fire him, ask you to fire him, did I? It's <laughs> no, create a false memo that says I <laughs> right. didn't do that, right. right? It's the difference, I mean, it captures the difference between the subtlety of, of Clinton and the blunt narcissism of Trump. I will say, though, there's a lot there's a lot of chutzpah there from President Clinton in the, you know, will you lie to Congress for me? And then also, hey, please take care of this old cat. I don't want. It's It's a lot 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 going on there. I'm curious, Paul, have you uh, talked to uh, or communicated with any of your former colleagues uh, on Star's staff about how they see these parallels between what they wanted to impeach 
Clinton for and what Mueller has documented that Trump did? Yeah, we, we've been talking, uh, a number of us. I, I would say, I, I mean, I don't want to bell them publicly because that's that was not the purpose of the calls. But I would say that there are significant number of them who see Trump's activities as worse. And then there are a few, uh, Ken Starr, most notably on TV mm-hmm. just recently, who seem to have uh, determined in their own minds that President Trump has not reached that same level as President Clinton. For the life of me, I honestly can't understand the analysis of that latter group, but there it is. <laughs> well, that that actually gets to two different questions I had for you, Paul. When you see Ken Starr sort of defending the president and in a lot of ways directly contradicting things he said during the Clinton impeachment process, what is your reaction to that? Do you think of him? Has he sold himself out? What's going on there? Uh, Ken is a long and good friend, <laughs> so I, I'm reluctant to I'm, I'm reluctant to criticize him, and I'm reluctant to say that he's sold out. I would say that I don't agree with his analysis, and I would love an opportunity to talk with him in some detail about how he could possibly reach a conclusion that seems to me, as you said, quite fairly to be deemed contrary to what he'd he'd said 20 years ago. Well, someone you haven't been afraid to criticize is Bob Mueller. You wrote this, dare I say, incendiary piece for The Atlantic, where you you basically described his failure to make a determination on obstruction as almost a dereliction of duty. Um, You know, what, what is your reasoning behind that? Why do you think Bob Mueller should have been more definitive there? He owed it to us. I mean, that's the simple thing. I get that he was bound by policy not to indict the president. I get that. And, and for two years, I've been telling anybody who would listen that I had no expectations that he would. But that policy against indicting the president doesn't mean that he can't give us his ultimate conclusion. You know, but for that policy, I would have or the evidence was in equipoise. He had no hesitancy in giving us that conclusion with respect to the allegations of affirmative conspiracy between the campaign and Russia. So why the hesitancy here? And I can only imagine it's because he kind of pulled his punch. He thought that the policy meant that he should also not offer us an opinion. And that's what we paid him for. That's what we hired him for, was his professional judgment as to whether or not actions that could be characterized as crime had been committed, uh, irrespective of whether or not they could be charged. I have to say, I I had the same thought as soon as I read Barr's first letter on this, saying that uh, the uh, special counsel Mueller did not make a recommendation on obstruction, and so he, Barr, was going to make it for him. By the way, what's your, uh, what are your thoughts on Barr's press conference and (laughs) his performance and spinning of the Mueller report so far? Well, also uh, very disappointing. And frankly, to be fair to Mr. Mueller, more disappointed in Mr. Barr. I mean, my pantheon is Trump, Barr, Mueller, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. from top to bottom. Mr. Barr, well, first off, I don't understand why he wrote a summary letter in the first instance when Mueller wrote summaries himself. Now, Barr said at the outset that he didn't give out the Mueller summaries because they had grand jury material in it or confidential information relating to national security investigations. But it turns out that they didn't. None of those redactions were there. So he held back the more sub, more complete Mueller summaries to give us his own summary. Why? I don't know. I think it was either poor lawyering or more likely something else. Second, he gave Trump a heads up 
Trump's personal attorneys a heads up as to what was in the report. There's no law or policy that that says he should have done that. When he was asked why, he said, well, it's the policy of the Ethics and Government Act from the independent counsel laws that we've been talking about. But that law lapsed in 1999. So he reached back to a 20-year-old law that no longer is in existence to justify giving the president's personal attorneys a heads up. Third, if the policy that we've just been discussing with respect to Mr. Mueller means that Mr. Mueller shouldn't have made a judgment, if we accept that Mueller was right, why would Barr have have an authority to make an, a judgment himself? And yet he did. Mueller says, this means we can't make a judgment. Barr says, well, it means you can't, but I'm going to. Right, uh, right, right. Um, and then, and then the, the yeah. last thing is, he just excused the president, right? I mean, I've read, I've read the Mueller report in detail now, as I'm sure you guys have. And you can quibble about some of the cases, but there's an overwhelming case for at least the possibility of solid obstruction charges. And Barr just said, nah, he was frustrated, as yeah. if being frustrated is a defense the to committing a crime. Right, right. Well, listen, if I heard you correctly, you are volunteering to testify before the House Judiciary Committee and recommend that uh, it vote to impeach the president. In which case, um, we'll definitely cover that, uh, and I'm sure it'll get lots of attention. I'm reasonably certain that Representative Nadler can find people with a, a <laughs> higher degree of prominence than me to make that recommendation. Well, you do have but the bona fides of having worked for Ken Starr and recommended impeachment of another president. So, uh, Mike, are you trying oh, to cut short that. his trip to Costa Rica? That, that is cruel of you, Mike. That is cruel and unusual. No, I, I think Paul could probably testify before the Judiciary Committee via Skype, just as he's talking to us. <laughs> anyway, thanks for joining us here on Skullduggery. Thanks for having me, man. That was fun. Thanks to Shane Harris and Paul Rosenzweig for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Pod, And now you can watch the podcast on yahoonews.com. YouTube, and Roku, Saturdays and Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Talk to you soon.